Neighborhood Church. To find out more about who we are, go to neighborhoodchurchmn.org. Enjoy the message. So we are uh, in our series called, um, not Sus Us, it's called, um, that was the last one, you remember that? That great. Thank you for laughing, right? It was um, Witness, that's where we're in our um, second week of Witness. It's not Witness, like I was a good evangelical uh, teenager in youth group, and we go to conferences, and they're like, you got to witness to your friends, and every week I'm like, I don't know how to do that, and I feel really awkward, so I'm not going to do it anymore. So not that kind of Witness, we're talking about um, people in the Bible have these um, experiences with Jesus. They see something, and it demands that they move towards Jesus, that they be something, and that they do something. And there's countless um, stories. And today we're talking about Nicodemus. And this guy named Nicodemus made this, um, prompted Jesus to say this word that uh, maybe is really life-giving to you, and maybe for others, um, it's not as life-giving. And that word is born again, right? Who's ever heard that word before? Born again, right? Um, I was listening to a podcast that had nothing to do with spirituality, zero. And um, they were talking about these celebrities and how all these celebrities um, came out as born-again Christians. And the, the, um, the host stopped and said, there was a whole movement in the 80s and 90s where celebrities would, like, state of, I am a born-again Christian. And that comes from a lot of places. It comes from the Billy Graham uh, um, revivals and an emphasis on getting people to say some sort of prayer, saying that these specific words, and if you say these specific words, you were once this, and then through those words, you were this, which is not bad, right? I'm not here to say that is some evil thing. If you say that prayer, or boo. Actually, it's a really beautiful thing. I've seen a lot of people find some um, hope and transformation in awakening to the reality of what and who God is through that prayer. But there's this, this a lot of emphasis, uh, especially in evangelicalism, a lot of emphasis on getting people to say that prayer. And why, right? Like, like why? And where does it come from? And so I thought today there's this guy named Nicodemus that sees Jesus, that prompts him to engage with Jesus, where Jesus says this whole idea. And it's John chapter 3. And John 3.16 is probably the most quoted um, thing that Jesus said, right? People hold it up at um, football games, and people, you know, love to say it. There's just one problem. Jesus didn't say it, right? It was John. John wrote that. And there's something about from John 3, 3 on to um, verse 16 that John felt implied, right? John felt moved to write it. And this is what I love about the Bible. You're going to see a little bit. Is the Bible is messy. The Bible is human. The Bible, imagine this, is political. And not political as in bad. Most of us hear the word politics and we're like, ooh, right? But political meaning they wanted to move people to a specific place. And we're going to read why maybe John kind of said what he said. So in John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. While we, oh, that's the... Land recognition rights. <laughs> That's also not in the Bible. So, um, verse 1, John 3. 
Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born uh, when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, um, there's some things to understand about the book of John. John, Steve, was not written by John the Baptist, right? I, in my notes, started writing down, you know, John the Baptist is, I'm like, wait, wait, no, no, no. This is why I'm in seminary, right? (laughs) John the Baptist gets his head cut off, so he can't write anymore, right? Um, John was written by someone called John the Beloved, is the word I like, because John has a big ego, and John always, um, when he's talking about John the disciple, he calls himself uh, the favorite. And John also says he's the fastest. In the resurrection, it says him and Peter ran, but then John says, and um, John the Beloved actually won the race. So, and John was written... um, Probably, scholars believe, anywhere from like 60, 50, 60 years, all the way 90 years after Jesus died, right? So this is one of the last written Gospels, which just tells you there's a lot of things happening in that time of when it was written. And also, um, there's some scholars that believe they don't know who wrote John, just because of Revelation, uh, they believe it was written by him, and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, so there's all this, all this um, idea of what's happening. But John, um, well, I believe John wrote it. Um, John uses uh, this, um, what do you call it? Is it not a metaphor? He uses a, um, he uses light and darkness. Is that a metaphor, right? Yeah, okay, so people are smarter than me. Um, he uses light and darkness as a way of like foreshadowing, right, also of like what's happening around them. So um, anytime he gives you a time of day or like a holiday or um, uh, if it's like a new day of the week, like he talks about in uh, the resurrection, John's trying to inform you that there's something more um, in the air. Like when he's meeting with the woman at the well, it says it was in the, the middle of the day. The sun's at the highest point, which is a way of saying, like, there is nothing to be hid. Everything is exposed. And here in this story, um, he is talking about Nicodemus, and Nicodemus comes at night, right? But the way he introduces John the Baptist, who did not write John, um, he uses that John came um, in, the, in, in the middle of the day, and there's this energy that with John. John comes, and he's um, pointing at Jesus, and he makes this beautiful statement about who Jesus is and what Jesus is going to do. And then John begins to baptize people, right? It's all in this kind of this um, movement, a little bit of chaos. There's this brilliance of John, and there's this pointing forward. And then John, in the same way that he talks about Nicodemus, Nicodemus is this brilliant person who's a rabbi, who's like, kind of like a mover and a shaker. And the way he describes Nicodemus is that he comes in the middle of the night. Why? Is he ashamed? Is he hiding something? Is there something happening in his life? There's something going on he doesn't want other people to see? But regardless, Nicodemus saw something in Jesus that demanded that he move towards him. Right? And the reason he does, he says, there's so, only something that, um, uh, that someone that has God that can do the things that you're doing. In chapter 2, Right before this, this is where Jesus comes and flips the table over, and he um, makes these statements. 
And it says that he did some signs and wonders. So Nicodemus is seeing what, what is happening. He goes, I, I have to understand who this Jesus is. And Jesus responds by saying, you have to be born again, right? There's that statement. And uh, um, Nicodemus says, well, I can't like, you know, I'm like old. I can't like climb back into the womb, which this is the danger, all right, of taking the Bible always literally, right? <laughs> this, this is one of those, those times. Like I take the Bible incredibly seriously, but not always literally. And Jesus is, again, using a metaphor, of you have to be born, there's born of water, and there's born from above, or there's born from the spirit, or there's born of the kingdom. And an important um, fact in, the, in this is that, um, and you might want to write this one down, um, Jesus was not a Christian, right? Jesus <laughs> was Jewish, right? He's a rabbi. And Paul was not a Christian. Paul was Jewish. Right? Nicodemus is a rabbi. So the context of what they're um, talking about, what they're thinking about, is going to be heavily influenced by the Hebrew Bible and their story. So when he says that um, we are born of water, I read one scholar uh, who was a rabbi that said, um, it's one way of thinking about this is that Jesus is pointing back of being born of water, of exile. Of God tells Pharaoh that these Hebrew people are my firstborn um, children, right? Firstborn children in a patriarchal society means they get all the blessing, they get all the rep, they get all the branding, they get everything, right? And uh, then uh, Moses, you know, splits the Red Sea in two, and they walk through. And on one side, the one people, as they're walking through, through they're being born of water. They're a new people, a new way of being, hum- a new way of being human. They have to reorder everything. They go to Mount Sinai. There's the tablets and the, the Ten Commandments. There's Levitical law. And there's like this, from there, there's uh, this transformation, this evolution of what it means to be human. So Jesus is saying, at one point, there was transformation. At one time, a way of being, we like showed you and you did it. Now, you have to be born again. You have to be born from above. You have to be born of the Spirit. And what Jesus point to is himself. He's saying there's this, there's this the way of awakening to this power, to this love, to this transformation, and it's everywhere. And you have to, at some point, awaken it. You have to be born again. But here's the issue with that, right? Um, N.T. Wright, uh, who is uh, a scholar, probably one of the most foremost scholars on um, the person of Jesus and the, um, what do you call it, the New Testament, right? And he says uh, about this specific passage he goes, it's kind of like having a birth certificate, right? If you have a birth certificate, which I imagine we all do, right? You don't put it on your wall, and when you walk by, you're like, let me read that again. Oh, yeah, I'm a human. I was born. I'm alive. You don't bring your friends around and say, look at my birth certificate. Unless you're running for president, then you want that, right? <laughs> the proof. Then you want that one, right? Um, and you're not going to bring people around to show you that at some point you were born. How do you know that you're born? You breathe. You laugh. Right? You run from the school board, and you win. Right? You, you, uh, um, you grieve. You, you, you live. You just you live your life, and you can see that you are alive, that you're, you're human. In the same way, N.T. Wright, he goes, way too often what churches or Christians do if, about being born again is like the birth certificate. They have to go, and I have to, like, defend to you. Like, no, 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 seriously, no, seriously, I was born again. Right? And people have done that. Imagine this. I've had a lot of people say, Chris, you're not a real Christian. I'm like, I'm happy for you. I am. I'm happy, right? So, um, but people will say, well, what kind of prayer did you say? And where did you say it? 
Did you really, really believe it? Did you really get it right? And then they can even say, well, you probably have to get born again again because you did these things or you thought these things. Now you're back on this team, right? And the whole idea, <laughs> has it anyone happened to them before? People saying, like, you're not really a Christian, you're not really born again, right? Yeah, sorry. So, uh, and the reason that people do it is they, they have to have, like, some keeper of the guard, it makes them feel special if we can say, no, no, I have the real, real secret. I have the real way for transformation. And this is a beautiful thing, like acknowledging and realizing that there's this good and beautiful God that wants nothing but good and beautiful things. That, that is a beautiful thing. But that's not the point. So much emphasis just gets people to this, to say this, to believe this. And why? Because then they believe they are saved, right? But saved from what? <laughs> right? Salvation, in, in its context, we have changed it into this, like, individual spiritual thing, right? Like, people will say, well, you know, my personal Lord and Savior, my personal relationship with Jesus. Like, Jesus never says anything like that. We've treated salvation as you get born again so that at some point um, you can go to some place, right, and be something. And everything that Jesus says and does and demonstrates is be whoever you think that is in the future be that now salvation in the in the context of thinking about it through a jewish lens salvation was never about some emotional spiritual thing salvation was always physical salvation was always social it was always cultural salvation always meant if someone was hungry, we are all hungry. If we're sitting at this table, we are all going to wait to eat, right, until everyone's at the table. Because when they were, um, I, met, I met this rabbi in Chicago, and he was um, talking to me about what it means to be in exile. And he's like, as Jewish people, we believe that we're always in exile. We'll all be in exile, right, until all things are made right, until there's salvation. No more war, no more famine, that people have, like, jackets. I'm still, I, I, I've been doing this long enough. I had a young mom call us on Tuesday and said, hey, I'm really embarrassed. I don't have any snow gear for my kids. Can you please do something, right? And I said, praying for you, thoughts and prayers. I hung up the phone. No, I'm joking, right? <laughs> no, but honestly, I think, um, Matt, how do I say this in the most positive way? Um, there is... Spiritual nonprofits, right, that make it so hard for people who are, for someone to call us, I bet they didn't wake up and say, I can't wait to go and ask for help. Wow, that's amazing. What a great way to spend my energy. It takes a lot of um, time and energy, right? It is very expensive to be in poverty. It costs you a lot, right? And so there's some other nonprofits that make it, have so many barriers to get access to that money. We have the money, right? We have, we, what do we call it? Um, neighborhood good. We have a fun neighborhood good, and if you want to contribute to that, you can. It's online, or you can throw it back there. Um, and we feed that account, so when we get those phone calls, it's not like, hey, can you come in and fill out this application, and uh, I'm going to pray with you before you get this money. I, the, I've been to um, places where um, I heard a pastor say, we just can't give these homeless people food. They have to sit through like a half hour because they need to hear the gospel. And after that, then they can get the food. This was like, man, this was a decade ago. And I thought, well, that's a weird gospel. 
right? Like, the gospel is the table. The gospel is the food. The gospel is the warmth. The gospel is the people around the table. So salvation is always, always, always physical in here. So this completely transforms and then when you think about being born again. What Jesus is saying is not like, hey, Nicodemus, I want to get you into heaven. What he's telling Nicodemus, Nicodemus, all around you, there's this way, this power, this love, and how it's played out is through you, your hands and your feet. Jesus, from the rest of the, of, of rest of the book, Jesus is demonstrating what it looks like to love, right? Because what does Jesus say? He says, how do you love God? You love your neighbors, you love yourself. How do you love God? You see a need, and you do something about it. You see something's happening in your community, in your school, in your workplace, and instead of just saying thoughts and prayers, you introduce yourself, and you do something about it, right? So, um, in the same way of you don't need a birth certificate to see you're alive, in the same way, Jesus is saying that this spirit, right, or he calls it this wind, you don't know where it's going, but you can see the effects of it. He's saying, everywhere you go, this spirit, this transformation is happening, and why don't you do something about it? And Jesus famously says, right, they sh- you shall know that you are um, my friends by the way you, by the way you love, right? How do you know if you are loving? Because, I don't know, has anyone ever said to you, like, I'm doing this out of love? And you're like, I'm scared, <laughs> right? I've never used that as a parenting technique ever. <laughs> I don't do this because I love you. So, um, all right, you can see the effects of love. You know you're loving if the conversation that I'm having, that they're, maybe they're receiving well. Maybe that their life is for the better when they interact with us. That maybe they have, again, a hot meal. You can have the receipts. There's this guy named, oh, what's his name? William James, who was the department chair at Harvard in the early 20th century on philosophy and religion. And he wrote this incredibly famous book that I don't remember the name of. Um, but his idea of studying religion, like academic study of religion is like um, wonderful, but it can be very, very broad. And they'd say, well, this is religion, and this is, th- this is not. Very intellectual, academic, which is my jam. But the way he did it, he said, well, why don't we just go to the individual person, and we like maybe believe them when they talk about the religious experience. The study of religion for him was all through the individual, and he was a pluralist. So meaning it could be Baha'i, it could be Muslim, it could be Christian, it could be indigenous. To him, it didn't matter. What he wanted to know was the fruit of the religious experience could bring transformation to them and to those around them. And he said, I'm more interested in the fruit than I am in the roots, which I found fascinating because a lot of a lot of academic people want to, like, where did this religion come from? And he goes, that's kind of the boring question. All that really matters is how is it producing love and transformation in you and the people around you, which is exactly what Jesus is saying. This is exactly what he's saying about being born again. So here's my invitation to you, friends. Yes, born again, having that experience can be transformational, it can be incredibly boring. C.S. Lewis, right, famous Christian uh, um, scholar and writer, he, he said, I became a Christian by, I hopped into the sidecar of a motorcycle, and I was not a Christian, and where we arrived at our destination, I got out, and I was a Christian, right? There's some people who have, like, this big come-to-Jesus moment. All of that belongs, and all of that can make, be really important and really good. But what I believe the emphasis should be on is how are you 
being Christian? How are you being born again day after day after day? How is salvation showing up in your everyday life? How is salvation showing up everywhere you go? Because who's going to do it? We say this all the time, right? It's, is it going to be God to show love? Is it going to be God to bring transformation? Is God to bring salvation? Yeah, but God doesn't have arms, <laughs> but you do. God doesn't have a table, but you do. So if we're willing to awaken to this reality of what it looks like to be love and to do love, then we can witness the good and beautiful things happening around us, but we also get to be the good and beautiful things. So I'm going to pray, and I'd love to have you join me. So God, we love you. And I thank you for the idea of salvation is not just limited. It doesn't have to stop with just me. And I do think that salvation is extended to me. Through your death and resurrection, there's this whole new way of being human. And so I ask God that you'll give us the wisdom and the moxie and the energy to actually be that, but then to do it. And we can move in that light. We can move in that way of extending love and kindness to people around us. And I do pray for people who are in the cold. I pray for people who, for Christmas, is not always uh, happy and smiles and giggling. And maybe even people here. Christmas, the whole Thanksgiving season just brings up loss, brings up grief. And God, we believe that you're in all of it. So God, will you continue to use us to bring love and transformation and salvation. And we love you. Amen. Well, thank you to coming to one of the shortest services we've ever had at Neighborhood Church. If you'd like to pray or you'd like to um, chat or you'd like to process, I'm going to put some music on in a little bit, and then I'd love to connect. Thank you for coming to Neighborhood. <laughs>